Hi, I'm Lieutenant Samuel Cox from the Centre of Australian Army Leadership. Welcome back to another episode of the Australian Army Leadership Program podcast, the official podcast of the CAL. In today's episode, we're speaking with Lieutenant Colonel Claire O'Neill, CSE, to discuss teaming and leadership, as well as drawing out her personal reflections on leadership from a number of interesting roles. Lieutenant Colonel O'Neill is an officer in the Royal Australian Engineers, and her regimental experience has included the 1st Combat Engineer Regiment, the 6th Engineer Support Regiment, and the 3rd Combat Engineer Regiment. She's been involved in several operations, international exercises, and disaster relief responses. She founded Grounded Curiosity and the Defence Entrepreneurs Forum Australia, and she's been both a Chief of Army Scholar and a Fulbright Scholar. She was recently announced as the next CEO of 51 Far North Queensland, and prior to that, she was the Assistant Director of the Chief of Army's Initiatives Group, which directly supported the Chief's development of his family of documents, Accelerated Warfare, Army in Motion, the National Institution Statement, and our capstone document, Army's Contribution to Defence Strategy. Welcome, ma'am. Thank you, Sam. And uh, just to start with, congratulations to the Cal team. Leadership is something we always need to work at and having this program to remind us of lessons of the past and to push our imaginations further into the future for the different roles, teams and environments that we may face is a really good thing. So well done. Thanks, ma'am. I appreciate you supporting us by coming on board today. So to set the scene for today's chat about teaming and leadership, really all we need to do is look at the Chief of Army's family of documents which serve as the guiding principles for our workforce. Teams and trust within those teams are a key feature in each of them. But good soldiering in particular tells us that creating successful teams is the main effort for junior leaders, like Seco's and I, and we can only achieve that off the strength of our leadership. If we keep it in-house, teaming in the Army can look like a diverse mix of rank and core, uh, which is combined, combined arms. But teaming can also be joint across the ADF between different services, It could be whole of government or teaming with other militaries. It can be wherever, whenever, and with whomever is required to achieve mission success. To bring you into this, ma'am, you start us off by discussing how leadership needs to adapt for different teams and how teams are changing in this environment of accelerated warfare, which the Chief's family of documents explores. Maybe you can also give us the 30-second version of accelerated warfare for those who haven't heard that term yet. So Sam, I I might fail you up front in terms of giving you a 30 second version of it, but the first point I'd just like to make is about the lessons I've learnt about strategic leadership. I've had a real masterclass from working in Army headquarters and particularly working for the Deputy Chief and the Chief of Army about how you move your leadership and vary it from the tactical leadership lessons um, to being a strategic leader because, as you can imagine, the Chief of Army cannot individually task everybody in the Australian Army through an op ward. So what strategic leadership does is it sets a direction of travel. And I've had this masterclass from the Chief of Army. And setting this strategic direction of travel means that we've all got this shared understanding and is the basis for every leader in Army to then set the direction of travel for their own teams. But we're all unified through this framework. So that the teams operating on your left flank, on your right flank, in the chain of command above you and 
the chain of command below you are all progressing in this same direction of travel. And so I find it really difficult to explain accelerated warfare without explaining the framework. So if you'll indulge me, I might give you my synopsis of what the framework is, um, which is about leadership and setting um, this unified action from which everybody can act. So the framework is, of course, accelerated warfare, army in motion, good soldiering and the fourth element, army for the nation and army in the community. Accelerated warfare, I'll try to do this one in 30 seconds for you, Sam, describes our operating environment. It acknowledges that the pace of change is quickening um, and it is accelerating across threats, domains, technology and in our society itself. And so instead of having long lead times for deployments and notifications for these deployments and exhaustive lead-up training, as my generation had during Afghanistan years, we have to prepare our teams to be ready now, to be ready now for missions that we don't even know exist and that may even exist tomorrow. And so the framework then of accelerated warfare really sets up the why we need to be an army in motion. And so army in motion is how we respond to accelerated warfare. This is recognition that the best armies always change. For example, we know if we use the same tactics over and over again on an enemy force that they will learn our TTPs, they will adapt and find ways to repeat us. So rather than an enemy or those accelerated warfare trends setting the pace, we should embrace change instead of complain about it or be scared by it. We should strengthen our ability to adapt and innovate and make this part of our DNA. We know that we need to outthink and outmaneuver enemy forces tactically. Army in Motion sets the framework for this to be who we are tactically, operationally and strategically. And in doing this, we need to turn what looks like problems in accelerated warfare into our moments of change to create opportunities and to prepare for that future being ready now and also preparing for the future by always um, looking at ways for us to be future ready. And so that's Army in Motion, the why behind Army in Motion being accelerated warfare. But to be good at Army in Motion... Uh, and the environment of accelerated warfare, we must be good at teaming and we must be good soldiers and creating sex successful teams is the main effort of our junior leaders. Not only creating successful teams within your chain of command, but being able to re-team for joint teams, for whole of government teams with our regional military partners and other actors. And good soldiering means not just thinking about your team, but by asking the question, how does my team help other teams to succeed? And so at an army level, that looks like army asking, how does the army team make and be better at making the joint team succeed? And so army in motion through teaming, all brought together through leadership is what then underpins how we succeed in an environment of accelerated warfare for army in motion. And the last bit of the framework is we cannot forget why we exist. We exist to serve the nation, the trust of the nation in us every day, in all of our actions of what we do, on operations and to execute disciplined violence when required on behalf of the nation. That trust that the nation gives us is our centre of gravity. We serve the nation in dangerous and tough environments wherever we are needed, whether for pandemics, for disasters, for training or for war. 
And our army is always built on people. We know that our people are of and they are for the nation. And so this is the last element of the framework, an army for the nation and an army in the community. And so what the Chief of Army has done is instead of individually tasking people, which you can't do as a strategic leader, he has set this unified direction of travel. And so leadership within this environment is asking how do you explain this and make this framework relevant to your team. And for leadership, I'd say that this involves telling story and bringing your teams together through narrative, bringing army in motion to life through deployments and exercises that your teams, and again, teams on your right flank and your left flank are going through. For a lot of junior leaders who have only recently joined the army, this feels like a peacetime army now. So how do we navigate the tension between uh, urgently becoming ready now for missions that we don't even know about yet when it does feel like we don't necessarily need that urgency because the environment isn't demanding that of us? So the first thing about preparing for war is that you don't get ready for an operation when you get on an OMD. You get ready now and to use a quote from Churchill to each there comes in their lifetime a special moment when they are figuratively tapped on the shoulder and offered the chance to do something special, unique to them and fitted to their talents. What a tragedy if that moment finds them unprepared or unqualified for that which could have been their finest hour. So I just trust Churchill to come up with a good that's quote exactly like that. right. I mean, I, I always like leadership when you can quote other people, and that's why your organisation is good because you'll be able to remind us of these quotes. So I just caution you about using the term peacetime army. I don't think we're a peacetime army. You are in an army that is always preparing for war and acting across cooperation competition and conflict and if you don't think that conflict is on the cards just read about what's happening in our cyber domain every day in Australia and overseas. So this is a time of accelerated warfare, it's not a time of scheduled rotations with months of lead up training and you don't know the timing of your next deployment, you don't know when you're going to be tapped on the shoulder and we've seen this in action this year as people were recalled from leave for bushfire assist. And even for COVID, there was very little notice given for many people for that. And this all relates to being prepared, building your own individual resiliency and redundancy in yourself. And it's interesting when I reflect on accelerated warfare, this wasn't new to me it was just putting a term onto something that has already always existed for me in my experience so to give you some examples of this that I have experienced when I was a lieutenant I was pulled off of ROBC a little bit early in order to take command of a troop um, that uh, was experiencing some difficulties I was pulled out of ROBC and took command of that troop six months early I was given I think less than half a day's notice to pack my bags and get on a plane to go to Western Australia and take command of that troop. So you have to always be ready. I mean, I could have rested on You're my ready laurels. Now, They're ready now. Um, could have rested on my laurels and think that I had six months preparation time before I sorted my own stuff out to then take command. But it happened overnight. The next time that happened was when I was with the same troop and I was in Canungra doing a 
training exercise and my troop and I got to the top of Stand 11. If you've ever been to Canungra, you know that Stand 11 is, is horrible while you're walking up it. It is a great joy to get to the top uh, once you've gone across all of those false peaks. My OC met me at the top of Stand 11. That was nice of him to wait until I got to the top. And uh, he extracted myself and a corporal from the troop. He told me I had 30 minutes to hand over to my troop sergeant. And he told, and I remember him saying, you're going to Afghanistan and you're going to Papua New Guinea. And I actually thought he'd pointed in my direction and told me I was going to Papua New Guinea. I, uh, I was driven back to the FOB at Canungra and I got my pack. Lesson number one for those of you out there, always pack civilian clothes. From that moment, I did not go back to my home base in Sydney. I took, I got changed into my PT gear, which was the only form of civilian clothes I had. And back then, you were not travelling on planes in military uniform. Uh, and went up to Darwin with what I had in my pack at that stage and never went back home. And from there, I attached to the 1st Combat Engineer Regiment. And um, after that, lead-up training, I was in Afghanistan and had gotten to the airport and realised I was going to Afghanistan at that point um, from there. So, again, I was tapped on the shoulder to do that and I really had no lead-up training time for it. The same thing happened again when I was tapped on the shoulder to go to South Korea to help training with the Special Warfare Command. I think I was given a week's notice for that. Um, And, again, when Indonesia had an earthquake in 2009... I was part of a flyaway team for operations and in 24 hours I was on a plane after that happened. Again, I never went home at that stage. The 24 hours, you think you've got 24 hours notice, that's 24 hours that you give to your team as a leader. You don't want to take that 24 hours for your own purse admin. So it's interesting to reflect on accelerated warfare because as a lieutenant I would have said that I joined a peacetime army And even if Afghanistan hadn't been something that I'd experienced, I look back at all of the other training, international training exercises, um, disaster relief, humanitarian assistance that I've done. I wasn't given lead-up training for any of that. I was expected to be prepared. And so I think being prepared for war as your normal point of being, um, you have to be ready now and you have to have the mindset that you're always preparing for war because when you are tapped on the shoulder, if you're a leader, the time that you have, you give to your team and you don't want to take it up um, for yourself. And later on in your career, as we'll uh, get to some questions later on, you did also get tapped on the shoulder to go to PNG after all. So both Afghanistan and PNG in the end. I, I did so, and uh, and it was nice to get back there because I'd started to learn tok pisin um, as a lieutenant because I did think that I had about a year's lead time to go to PNG and um, uh, when I was a lieutenant, but uh, it turns out that that came in handy about a decade later. Mm. Now. You talked about accelerated warfare capturing trends that you think uh, already existed. And I wonder if you could unpack for us, many people I think in Army would say that we've always been good at teaming and that's something Army's always done well given that people are our greatest resource uh, in the Army. So what is it about good soldiering uh, that's different? Does that just uh, in ca- capture existing knowledge about teaming and put a 
a label on it in the way that potentially accelerated warfare captures existing knowledge within army or is there something different about good soldiering uh, and leadership uh, as a tenant in that? So, so I think you're right in that it captures things that we're already good at. So good soldiering is about being good soldiers. So it looks at the individual level. Then it looks about how you create successful teams that comes together through character and it also comes together through leadership. And we have to work really hard at that. So that's no different to, I think, anything that I've read in history. And it's interesting about re-teaming. You look at the attrition rates of World War I and World War II, and we are an army that prepares for war. Um, the attrition rates at the beginning of the war means that if you started with a team at the beginning of World War II, one, you suddenly ended with a different team. So they were re-teaming. You look at battles and you hear the stories of people having to regroup in the middle of a battle because of the attrition rates of what their team's been through and having to form a new team often without knowing each other and having to use those leadership skills with a common purpose for the mission that they've been set to re-team in that. You look at combined arms teams, which is over a century old now, and how they experimented with re-teaming in the middle of a war in order to figure out how to change their TTPs to defeat an enemy, and that's army in motion. Our successful armies will constantly change and if you're doing it really well you're changing before an enemy makes you so you're the one making an enemy change instead of having that changed enforced on you so there is bits of good soldiering that you can see in our dna the whole time i do think the thing that is changing is that it's accelerating so we now expect junior leaders i think at a younger age to be able to team with broader teams so whether it is on a disaster relief exercise that junior leader having to team quickly and understand and have that awareness of what a defat official is doing you look at all of rfs for example that's right all of the uh, liaison officers from the junior leaders um, that have been out there in coordination centers with no probably specific training for that, but using their leadership and their teaming skills to re-team on the hop. And I know a lot of people in PARs then say, oh, I wasn't prepared for that. Well, actually, I always ask the question of, but you were really successful. So what made you successful of that? And it's all these things that we we learn on training through osmosis about leadership and re-teaming. So again, I think the speed of it is quickening I think lower level teams are now at an earlier age dealing with broader teams even thinking about the future I predict that we will have cyber experts down at section level people who can quickly create an app code it create an app to solve a problem at the lowest level and so these will be different people in teams probably pushed down to the lowest level rather than be held centrally. So good soldiering is making us think about what those teams of the future now, who, who are we teaming with now? What is our new combined arms team? What does that joint team look like? Um, and what do the teams of the future look like? And therefore, is our leadership model changing? Is it staying the same? And it's forcing us to think about how we can be the best leader for the team that we've got. And that means your leadership style sometimes needs to be adaptive too. 
Another thing that Accelerated Warfare asks us to think about is the way that trends in robotics and autonomous systems and human-machine teaming are accelerating in our current environment. What Can you comment on what leadership looks like uh, in the future for uh, a diverse team where it's not just you know a cyber professional down at the section level but potentially uh, teaming with robotics and autonomous systems? I said in the future, but actually just last year, I know out of the Madura training area near to where we're recording today at the Royal Military College Duntroon, there was tests of uh, autonomous M113s uh, and uh, robotic dogs, for example. And that's not quite what they're called, but that's what they look like. Uh, Hori and Cougar, uh, who can be seen wandering around the corridors of Russell. Um, so actually, it's a bit more, a bit sooner than uh, the future, ma'am. So I'm really proud of the Australian Army and and getting this equipment, this ro- these robotics into the system before we really know what we need them for. And so I think the key to looking at leadership of teams in the future is to start to imagine what they could be. So they could be Hori and Cougar, um, the robotic dogs, and start experimenting with them. Put junior leaders in charge of these teams now in training because I think we will certainly bring the foundation of all of the leadership lessons of the past, but it is until you work with the teams that you find the friction points and also the points of opportunity. So I think our imaginations can think of things on paper right now, um, but that is probably half the story. I think as soon as we start working with these new teams, our our imaginations will stretch out further to what we can currently think of. So I think that's the most exciting part is that our organisation is already bringing these new forms of teams uh, into the system so that we can start to experiment on them. You can see it with the UAVs um, and all of that. We, We don't really know what we need it for. We don't know how to adapt our teaming and our leadership. But the more we use it, the more people will get lessons and the more we'll be able to share those lessons widely so that we have a running start if we need it to use it on real, on operations. So I don't know what that leadership will be. I am all ears for the junior leaders who get a hold of this equipment and I'd encourage them that this is where they need to share those lessons, find the mechanisms. Not all lessons can be shared in public online but figure out how you share those leadership lessons with your peer groups when you meet up on courses virtually or or in person or how you start to distribute that through through the system so that we can all benefit from those who've experienced these new age teams and and what we need to do and adapt and in, and in fact bring it back to cow so that that can be distributed widely yeah i'd agree ma'am i think probably one of the exciting things is that the answer to the question of what does this team look like um, what does leadership look like in these diverse teams probably doesn't nest with a lieutenant colonel it's exciting that it nests with junior leaders like a uh, lance corporal who works out how to make that work within their team uh, and then they're the seco or sergeant uh, in the potentially the next war or at least the next operation where we can use that tech absolutely and Part of good soldiering is that the character, our character is founded on respect and a humility and both of those things give us the ability to learn from each other and if you've got humility as a senior leader it means that you'll be taking those lessons from the ground up and junior leaders also taking lessons from the top down so that we can, we can share knowledge with each other and learn from each other. So earlier ma'am you already drew out some of your experiences in PNG. Korea, Afghanistan, 
uh, and I'd like to speak to some of that now. So you have the honour of commanding nearly 400 people from the PNG Defence Force, United States Marine Corps and UK Royal Engineers in support of the 1st Royal Pacific Island Regiment's security operations training in Port Moresby. You also trained with the Republic of Korea's 1st Afghanistan Group from Special Warfare Command, as you alluded to earlier. These are just two examples from your career. But how did you quickly build trust within those teams? How important is shared language and culture? Or are there some elements of leadership that can overcome those barriers? So let me first of all make a couple of points about trust. The first one being, and the reason why the system is currently emphasising training transformation, is that we have a common starting point of trust because we have common training. And so... Trust isn't something that you set and forget. You have to work at it. You have to build upon that initial foundation. But the excellent thing about our system is through this common training, we have a baseline level of trust in all of our people. And this is also why training is endless. So in Papua New Guinea, we know each other's training systems um, and then building that trust so that we had shared experiences through training Uh, was really important. So getting small teams and then bigger teams together, even through simple things like PT, um, in order to have shared common experiences for which you can have a laugh about, from which you can share lessons to then progress forward. And that requires a good understanding of your team. So who is your team of team? For me as an officer commanding in Papua New Guinea, my first team was between my sergeant major and I, Um, My sergeant major saved me from making a lot of mistakes by being my sounding board. Um, That was our command team um, and it was vital. The expanded command team was my OPSO and also my 2IC who were again a team within a team as part of that command decision making I was in a team with the commanding officer of one RPIR and I guess that's where trust was really built. I spent a lot of time in Papua New Guinea and I used to work into the wee hours of the morning doing the paperwork but my time during the day was given to him and his team. I was going to be his subordinate, not through any authority, um, that didn't really come, but he was going to give me his company of excellence. He trusted me because we had hours of conversation where I would promise nothing but then would turn up in the next conversation with something to deliver. And so trust was built in that way. So your command team is a really important team to do. They say leadership can be quite lonely sometimes, uh, and it is. You feel the weight of responsibility on your shoulders, but if you can build command teams, um, both the small command teams and then teams within teams, that's really important. Um, But it's nice to know that you've got a, a shared point of trust through our common training. A senior leader, a wise senior leader, uh, once said to me, in fact, I've seen him speak this in a number of open forums, and he always asked the questions, how do you know if you can trust someone? And there's always a silent pause, and then he gives the answer of, you trust them and they will show you. And if you think about it, that's absolutely true, because if you start from a point of trust, noting that you're always building on it too, people will usually excel because you that they can be trusted and because we have really good people, good people in, a, in regional partner forces and Australian citizens who have joined the army to serve and they want to do well. So instead of thinking that you have, that you have no trust to begin with and that's something that you do, you trust people from the start 
And even if somebody lets you down in that equation, it just means that you know that you need to help them to excel and be better. So you've learnt something from that anyway. But 99% of the people are going to excel in an environment where you've trusted them from the start. To build trust also, you have to give people your most valuable resource, which is time. It is very easy to fall into the trap of being too busy um, and letting your priority be the paperwork rather than the people. Um, that is a really difficult balance because you've always got a boss too who sometimes is demanding paperwork. It's sometimes easier when you're away from a home environment because you're, you're, the expectations of being home with a family is less. Um, so in Papua New Guinea, for example, my time during the day with my sergeant major was spent with people and we worked very late hours to then do the paperwork. But when you're in it together and through multiple cups of coffee, you can kind of get through it too. And that makes you enjoy actually being in command and being a leader. And enjoying command has uh, just reverberates through your teams too. Your boss sets the tone for the day. And even if sometimes you have to fake it, you should try to be positive in your leadership style. I haven't always succeeded in that. Um, but if you're enjoying being in command, and usually people will say that's when they're amongst their teams and with their people, you will be a better leader for it. So prioritising people over that paperwork is a really important thing. In Papua New Guinea, with 400 people, as you can imagine, um, that was quite a challenge. And the cultural and language barriers are always quite interesting. You have to give it a shot. Um, and language and cultural barriers are always two-way you have to I always found people will forgive your cultural and language skills as well as as long as you are implementing that value of respect so you're doing it respectfully you're making an effort I always used to get good laughs out of a lot of the Papua New Guinea Defence Force because I would give speeches in Tokpisin I've never been officially trained in Tokpisin and uh, and I think sometimes I said the wrong thing um, but, but would try to make a joke of it in the end and I think I got brownie points for at least trying. So cultural and language barriers, you just have to show respect um, and an effort. More importantly, as a leader, you need to set shared values and common purpose. So with the Papua New Guinea Defence Force, for example, we, instead of the PNGDF being attached to the three CER team, we renamed the squadron Puk Puk Squadron so that it wasn't a 3CR squadron named as such. It was Puk Puk Squadron. We were all Puk Puk Squadron. I deployed a captain into Papua New Guinea before the main body arrived and got him to work with the PNGDF to design um, a new shoulder patch. That was illegal and eventually the RSM uh, reminded me of policies. You can't just create new badges. Thankfully, I was under the command of the Papua New Guinea Defence Force CO at that point in time, so I slightly tap-danced my way out of that. But instead of having a 3CR patch on that other people attached to, we wanted to build the identity of one team. We were Puk Puk Squadron. Um, people were bringing the inherited positive things from being from different organisations, but we all had shared purpose, shared identity through our name and also um, shared symbolism in there. And, and while they seem really minor things, that was really important. 
as an engineer, I have both led um, teams and I have been attached to teams. And the mere word of being attached to a team means that you're something other than being part of that team. And so it's a lesson I take everywhere with me. I don't talk about attachments. Once you are in the team, you are there. It, you are not at an attachment. And I would encourage people to try to not use that term because it always makes you an outsider. And so it's little things like that about how to build identity, give people common purpose, um, common symbolism to move forward. And then spending your time with people is what builds trust. Yeah, man, words do matter. So I'll be sure to stop referring to attachments and make sure they feel like they're part of the team. You've given us a lot to think about in terms of trust, in terms of time with teams, and in terms of where teaming fits within the Chief of Army's family of documents. From here, I want to get into different topics entirely. So we'll end the conversation here and pick it up again in part two.